If you would, remain standing and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 121. Right in the middle of our Bibles is Psalm, and we'll look at 121 this morning. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness, His Spirit, each other. He's given us His Word, and oh how rich it is. A song of ascents, it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Father, how needy we are. How good you are. You are everything to us and everything for us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus dying in our place. We thank you for his glorious resurrection on the third day. Thank you that he lives now and forever and intercedes for us. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit within us. We thank you for your word and we pray you'd teach us. We pray for those with us this morning that haven't yet come to know this Jesus and experience these gifts in this saving, glorious way. Perhaps today, Lord, they would begin that journey towards you through Jesus on account of his cross. Would you give them eyes to see, give them faith, grant repentance, cause us all to cry out more often in a more needy sense for help. And to thank you more often than we do that you are such a great help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. Well, this spring and summer, our family has driven more in the car together than we ever have. In April, we did a quick trip to Louisville, Kentucky and back. It was about 2,600 miles. In late May, we drove up to Denver for a a family funeral. And then after the funeral, we left from Denver to Florida for family vacation. Another 2,400 miles from Albuquerque to Denver, then down to Florida. And of course, when our family vacation came to an end, we drove home from Florida another 1,800 miles. Now let me tell you, These trips were excruciating and difficult. I did most of the driving, and I just sat there. I sat there and sat there and sat there. We all did. Sure, I had all the music I own, practically. I I had podcasts to listen to. I, I had my favorite conversation partner next to me along the way. The kids had movies to watch and games to play. 
But, but not always. There was one day when the kids forgot to keep out the iPad charger. And, and it was buried deep in the luggage and we weren't going to get it out. And so when that iPad battery was dead, that's it. There were no more movies for the rest of the day. There was a spell where I couldn't get my phone to sync up with the van. It was very frustrating for me. I had to get out an old iPod and use that instead. And by day two, all the good snacks were gone. <laughs> all the snacks that Sarah packed from home, like fresh fruit, they don't have that at gas stations. And so we had to get gas station cashews and peanuts and crackers. And I recall one lunchtime which was postponed by at least a whole hour because we didn't plan it well. Texas is big and sometimes rural and, and we had to go a long ways before we could finally get to a fast food place that we all found acceptable. It was dangerous. Well, almost dangerous. We saw a deer get hit by a, another car, not our car. It was actually kind of awesome to see. but. I'll just say that, but it, it was dangerous. It made us a little scared going down the road after that. We had, we had surprises, like that one-hour delay due to heavy traffic in Atlanta. It was brutal. Now, before anyone throws something at me because I'm being ridiculous, let me quickly acknowledge that indeed I am being ridiculous. I'm sure I garnered no one's sympathy with those complaints. It wasn't that bad. This is sort of a backwards way of getting at the point of how easy travel is for us these days, at least comparatively so. Our cars, most of our cars, are incredibly reliable and comfortable and safe and sometimes even entertaining. So I can tell my kids about days when it was impossible to watch movies or play video games in the car. But then my dad can tell me stories about trips he did when his feet would be badly sunburned because he would put his bare foot out the window to cool off because there wasn't AC in the car. And his dad probably told him about cars that needed to be cranked to be started and would maybe only go 35 miles an hour and I'm sure his dad could tell him stories about traveling by horse and buggy. We have it good. So good that it's hard to imagine the setting and the circumstances of this sojourner in Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is a psalm of ascents. And we learned last week as we started this series that these 15 psalms were at one point collected as a mini hymnal, you could say, to be used as the Israelites made their pilgrimages back to Jerusalem for one of three annual feasts. They ascended from wherever they lived up to Jerusalem for sacrifice and for worship and, and for feast. Deuteronomy 16 describes it three times a year. All your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the feast of the unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths. So to Jerusalem 
from wherever you started three times a year. So six trips a year. If you lived in, say, Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, a journey by foot would be about 100 miles or so. According to Google Maps, that's about uh, 30 hours of straight walking. But if you're in a caravan of well-loaded donkeys with children to keep track of as well, I, I bet you're not going at the pace that Google Maps estimates. So it would take at least a few days for Jesus and his family or any Jews of Nazareth to journey into Jerusalem a few days, and, if that's, and that's if there were no surprises along the way. So you can imagine these six trips greatly defined the lives of the ancient Israelites. And God gave them these songs to help their faith and encourage them on the journey. And as we said last week, these psalms were also used later on when God's people returned home from Babylon. They were used from that time of course, for the feasts, but it was natural as they returned home from Babylon after 70 years of captivity that they would sing these songs on the way as well. And the book of Ezra tells us at least that Ezra's journey from Babylon to Jerusalem took a full five months. Five months. So whether we're talking about a trip to Jerusalem that's 100 miles or 500 miles, it was arduous, it was dangerous, it was precarious. So what do you do when it feels as though your life is hanging in the balance on this trip? What do you do when you're afraid, when, when maybe you're tempted to turn back? You sing. You sing to each other. And particularly, you sing something like Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is a song to invoke trust when the journey looks treacherous. It affirms and encourages us that God is our helper and he is our keeper. There are two main parts to this psalm. You can see a change of voice take place. Notice in verses 1 and 2, it's first person, I and my. And then it changes at verse 3 in following. Now it's you and your. So there's the literary shift in the psalm. What's happening here? Well, it could be a few different things. One, one option is that this man speaks to himself in verse 1, speaks of himself in verse 1 rather, and then in verses 3 and following, he speaks to himself. He maybe preaches to himself. Of course, you see that kind of thing in Psalm 42 and other psalms as well. But I think most likely what's going on here in Psalm 121 is that this was meant to be responsive. This was meant to be antiphonal. So maybe a leader in first person singular would say, I, in my and then the congregation would join in with the response of verses 3 in following. Many psalms seem to have a built-in liturgy. And I think this is one of those psalms. And this should remind us immediately that psalms are both personal and corporate. They're to be used in private and together. They're meant to encourage and instruct 
ourselves and each other. This is a song. And we're to sing songs like this from our hearts and into each other. So if you're following along on that sermon notes page in the back of the bulletin, you'll see our general outline is a pilgrim's meditation, verses 1 and 2, and an antiphonal response in verses 3 and following. Now back in October of last year, Pastor Trent preached from this very psalm, and he preached an excellent message on it. I was jealous of his outline then, and I still am today. Here's Trent's better outline. He said this is trouble up ahead, trouble underfoot, trouble overhead, and trouble all around. That's a good outline. Mine is much less imaginative, but hopefully it will still be useful to you, even if this is a familiar-sounding psalm to you. We see first a pilgrim's meditation, and it starts with a looming question in verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? Sometimes hills and mountains in the Bible are good things. We'll actually see that in Psalm 125 in a few weeks. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. I'm sure many of us have thought of the hills of Psalm 121 in a similar way. Maybe that the psalmist was looking to the hills, maybe to Jerusalem itself and the hills surrounding it for his help. And by doing so, what he was really doing is looking for God's help as he looked to those hills. But, but I think Psalm 121 is more likely separating the hills from the help. The hills are the reason that you need help. This man is just at the outset of his journey from his home to Jerusalem. There's a long way to go to get to Jerusalem. And there are hills between his home and Jerusalem. And hills are high and hills are hard. And hills can be dry and desolate. And that's why you need help. He sees hills, mountains, peaks, valleys. It's hard going up hills and it's precarious coming down. For us today, we can't relate. A drive through the rocky mountains gives us beautifully smooth roads, amazing scenery, very little danger whatsoever. But hills or mountains of almost any size are precarious when you're walking with a well-loaded donkey where there isn't a road or maybe even a path. There are no mile markers, no street signs, let alone a voice coming from a phone or a dashboard telling you precisely where to turn or how to go back. No convenient gas stations to pull off to. Occasionally these pilgrims would travel through a town, but for the most part it would be uninhabited, desolate land. The terrain would be tough and dangerous. Wild animals would roam about and could lurch out around any corner. Bandits and robbers hid in these hills waiting for easy prey. So this man looks up to these hills and wonders aloud, from where does my help come? How would you answer 
this pilgrim's question. Where does your help come from? Where do you turn for help? Do you think you need help? This man assumed he was going to need help. I bet there's someone here who would say, been doing just fine. Pull myself up by my bootstraps before I can do it again. I can get myself out of a pinch, a bind. I'll figure it out. But we need help. We need help. Don't think that because today mountains are easy for us to drive through with our powerful and reliable cars that we don't need help. Don't let my introduction fool you. Travel might be easier and safer and quicker for us today than it was for Israelites thousands of years ago. But we certainly have our hills before us. We certainly have dangers on the horizon. We have treacherous paths that we walk through at times. So think of whatever it is that keeps you up at night these days. Think of that thing or those things that have your stomach in knots when you think about them. Health issues, relational issues, concerns about your kids, concerns for your parents, changing jobs, going off to college, sending a kid to college. Adjusting to an empty nest, marital, marital strains, personal weaknesses like depression or, or sins or doubt. Think of whatever is on the front page of the CNN website this morning. And I didn't check it since last night, so I don't know if something big happened. But whatever's there, there are our hills that's where we're going to need some help. You look at all these things, these impossible hills before us, and we ask, we must ask, where does our help come from? Where do you turn to for safety, for assurance even, for, for comfort? Smith & Wesson, a good security system, a stash of money, a growing investment, the government. Here in the U.S. of A., our military and defense budget as of this year is $601 billion. That's yearly on security and military and defense. That $601 billion is more than seven of the next highest spending countries combined. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should spend less on security or military. Just, that's not my point. You can debate that some other time. But I'm just simply noting that it is an awful lot. And we can't trust in it. $601 billion? And something's going to happen. It's something that's still going to happen. It's just a matter of where and when and how badly it will be. So what do you do when you look ahead and you can't see any definitive help? Well, there, the second half of the pilgrim's meditation is his answer to the question. And he says there's help from the creator. 
Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Help from the creator. Now, why the creator? Why, why specify who made heaven and earth? He could have said almost anything next, anything true about God. He could have said, my help comes from the Lord who loves me. My help comes from the Lord who covenants with his people. He could have said almost anything after that. But why who made heaven and earth? Well, let's just list some of the connections between the help we need and the creation power of God. He's powerful. He spoke things out of nothing. He can do anything. And so he can be of help to us for anything. You think of the universality of his creation. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Everything, everywhere. He is everywhere. He is omnipresent, we say. He's not a local God. He's not a limited God. Because he's the creator of everything, he's the owner of everything. And so he's in control of everything. He is Owning and controlling everything that could be threat. So every threatening jackal on the path, that's his jackal. That lurking bandit is his bandit. He made him. He owns him. Those ominous clouds on the horizon are his clouds. That blistering sun up above is the Lord's sun. And this God is the psalmist's help. His help. Isn't it incredible? Isn't it breathtaking that God calls himself a helper to people, to sinners, to you and to me? In Psalm 54, we read, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. In Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side as my helper. Or even back in Deuteronomy 33, there is none like God who rides through the heavens to your help. This helper is the maker, and he's also the Lord. Notice that that's in small caps in your Bible, the Lord. Notice, too, that five times in this psalm we see that kind of Lord listed here, showing us that this is, in Hebrew, God's personal name, Yahweh. I am who I am is what it means. It's his covenantal name. So there is one God, a covenant God, a creator God, and that's the one who is our help. For everything. It was enormously comforting to me this week to think about the sweet benefit of getting help from the God and the one God, that there is just one God. I mean, every now and then, the oneness of God needs to really just settle into the trenches of our hearts and, and stir us to, to thank Him for the privilege of going to the God. And going to the one God with all of our problems. I thought of how the Israelites were unique among the nations around them. 
The other nations around them, of course, had many gods. Native Americans still today have many deities and many spirits. The spirit of fill in the blank, I googled it this week, there must have been 36 or so among the different Native American tribes. How sad, how difficult that would be. How difficult it would be to size up a problem and to know which gods and spirits are involved in this one and how to deal with them separately. But our God, the Lord, is one. He's the maker of everything. Well, that's the testimony of this pilgrim. That's his meditation. He looks to the hills. They're hard and high and dry and desolate and dangerous. He asks where his help is, where his hope lies. And he answers himself with resolve and confidence. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. What would you do if you heard someone say that? Well, hopefully you'd want to respond with affirmation and mutual encouragement. And so the rest of the psalm is an antiphonal response. Again, verse 3 switches from I and my to you and your. And the crescendo grows as the crowd joins in. There's even a crescendo in the language of this second half. As it moves from the particular protection of a foot in verse 3. To the comprehensive protection of all of life in verse 7. It's growing and there are two points of emphasis in the rest of this psalm under this antiphonal response. That God's keeping is constant and that God's keeping is complete. But keeping is the key. Six times we see that word keep in one form or another. God keeps. God is your keeper. He will keep. What does he keep? Keeps you. What's it mean that he keeps? Well, well this is shepherd language. A shepherd keeps sheep. That means he watches them, he guards them, he protects them, he cares for them, he feeds them, he keeps them close and, and keeps them from wandering. He leads them, he goes before them. All of that is wrapped up in this one thing called keeping. He's a shepherd who keeps. And his keeping is constant. Note the constancy at the beginning and end of this section from verse 3 to verse 6. You see in verse 3, he who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And then verse 6, again, constancy. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Sun and moon, day and night. He doesn't sleep. His vigilance is perfect. God doesn't sleep. His alertness is always 100%. He is all fully aware, constantly aware. He is unwaning in his vigilant awareness and observation and watchfulness. What a contrast between God's perfect vigilance and whatever we can muster up. I suppose a soldier may have to be on guard, watching for 
I don't know, eight hours, maybe 10 or 12 or 14 in extreme scenarios. At some point, he may look for some help, some coffee, maybe something more. Maybe the government has, I don't know, some kind of drug that works better than coffee. He might use other tactics eventually to try to stay awake and to stay alert. He might run in place real fast or slap himself in the face. But at some point, all the tactics become useless. It's like in the cartoons. Those toothpicks propping up the eyelids eventually begin to shake and bend because of the seemingly infinite weight of the sleepy eyelids. We're hopeless to resist it. The strongest, most skilled, most determined Navy SEAL eventually must sleep. And then when he does, he does the exact same thing that babies do. He lays there. He goes unconscious. His mouth opens. Drool pours out. He snores. He rolls around in this useless state of temporary hibernation. John Piper has this great bit on a theology of sleep. Quote, once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think we're in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become as limp as a suckling infant every day. Sleep is a parable that God is God and we are mere men. God handles the world quite nicely while a hemisphere sleeps. sleeps is like, sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every day. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. But God is sovereign. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't even get sleepy and he stays awake for us. He's watching not just his world generally, but us. He's on watch for us 24-7. Like a mom or maybe even a dad with a newborn there in the crib in the middle of the night. Maybe you're up simply to go to the bathroom or get a drink of water, and there they sleep, and you go in, you peek, you watch, you watch, make, make sure they're breathing. Make sure they haven't rolled over. I forgot which side it is that it's a bad side to be on when you're sleeping. Whatever side that is, you know it, you're aware, you're watching, you're watching, you're watching. You're also enjoying, marveling, thanking God. But you don't do it all night, every night, and the next day. But God cares for us like that. He helps. He doesn't just stay awake and watch, but he helps. He does something. He keeps. He protects. Verse 3 gave us a specific way in which he does this. He will not let your foot be moved. He'll keep you from slipping. 
He'll keep you from injury. He'll see to it that you keep going. He'll command his angels, Psalm 91 says, to keep watch over you lest you dash your foot upon a stone. How many stub toes more might we have had if angels didn't watch over us? God is our protector. He is our shade, according to verse 5. The Lord is your shade on your right hand, close by. So the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Traveling in ancient Palestine meant that the sun was a real problem. For us, it's an optional thing to deal with, right? We can go inside. We can use air conditioning or, or a swamp cooler to stay cool. But for them, sunstroke was a real possibility. And some people died because of the sun. But the Lord will protect. The moon means nighttime. And nighttime means darkness. And darkness is usually when we sleep. But animals don't always sleep then. And some of them take advantage of the cloak of darkness to sneak up on their prey. Bandits might do the same thing. It's a fearful thing to go to sleep in places that are more desolate and more dangerous than our campgrounds here in the United States. But it's not scary for God because he's awake and he sees. The darkness is not darkness to him. The night is as day for him. Yes, most of us go to bed fairly unconcerned about the dark. In fact, we prefer to sleep in the dark rather than in the light. We prefer to sleep at night rather than in the day. But we also have our own versions of the night where things happen, things we don't see come. We're unaware, we're vulnerable, we're susceptible. We need to trust that God sees what we can't. So the Lord is your keeper, your watchman, your guard, your protector, your shade at your right hand. Nothing can get to us if we're his. Nothing can touch us. And so in these last couple of verses, it's ratcheted up even higher. Here, his keeping is complete. His keeping is constant. And his keeping is complete or comprehensive, if you like. Verse 7 says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He'll keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now this is too much, isn't it? I mean, this is just way too much. Complete protection of every kind for every threat at all times in all circumstances forever and ever. I mean, we probably felt something of the tension long before verse 7 and 8. Back in verse 3, we may have scratched our heads and said, but I broke my ankle once. What do you mean he'll keep my foot from slipping? I've slipped countless times. What does it mean that he's our shade when we've gotten severe sunburn at times or maybe melanoma? How does he keep us from all evil? 
when we know we face evil all the time, we even do it ourselves. Well, think first about these Old Testament pilgrims, and then we'll think about New Testament Christians. For these Old Testament pilgrims that sung this song heading to Jerusalem, they sang this song in faith, not believing that God wouldn't bring them into any danger or even any hurt, but that he would see them through it. Their faith was realistic faith, not Pollyanna optimism, not name it and claim it theology. Think about it. They kept walking up the hill as they sang this song. God didn't flatten out the hills for their ease and comfort. Their steps were still hard. The way was still long. The path was still difficult. The sun was still hot. The dark was still a cloak for the unknown. The animals were still out there, and some of them still had fangs and claws. None of that changed because they believed Yahweh was their help. They believed that God would keep them through anything not from anything. They believed that God would keep them eternally, now and forevermore. And that's what the New Testament teaches about those who are being saved by Jesus, and those who are his, those who have come to him. You can just look back at Jesus himself to see how God protects in mysterious Ways. You see, Jesus was protected up to the cross and even through the cross. He was protected all during that time when, when the Roman, sorry, when the Jewish leaders wanted so desperately to kill him, but couldn't and couldn't and couldn't. Sometimes they'd go to grab him, and, and it just says he slipped to the crowd. How'd that happen? I don't know, it's a David Copperfield kind of moment, apparently. God was protecting. And even on the cross, God was protecting. That's why this scripture of the Old Testament was fulfilled. They did not break any of his bones. Even in the horrible crucifixion and the tearing of his flesh, God in his protection was shown by the simple fact that they didn't break his bones. And of course, the resurrection is the real proof that God protected him, not from death, but through death. And he was vindicated, and he lives. The cross didn't look at all like God's protection, but it was. In fact, it was also God's provision to us. Remember how Psalm 121 shows God as the keeper the shepherd, does that bring to mind, like it does for me, John 10, where Jesus said that he is the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. He says, I know my own, and my own know me, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Jesus said of himself, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He goes before them. 
So Christian, he's with us. He keeps us. He leads us. And we're on a journey to God. But that doesn't mean that the pathway will be easy. In fact, we know it won't. We know in this world you will have tribulation. We know that life is hard. And we have an explanation for why it's hard. It's a fallen world. It's a broken world. God's image in us is not destroyed, but it's shattered and fractured. And we see that fracturing in relationships and in governments and all over the place. Life is hard. The Christian life is hard. It's described as a race, as farming, as wrestling, as a fight, a boxing match, as war. We shouldn't be surprised that there are hills up ahead, valleys to tread through. It doesn't surprise us that sometimes in this world the sun feels hot and the dark seems really dark. The mission that he's given us to do is hard, but he's with us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. He said that, and then he sent them out on mission. He's with us. He'll keep us. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, he said. Think of the sobering but encouraging words that Jesus gave his disciples in Luke 21. This messes with you, doesn't it, when he says, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You'll be hated by all for my namesake. But not a hair of your head will perish. Not a hair on my head will perish. You just said some of us are going to die. What does it mean that not one hair will perish if my whole body perishes? And of course, it means that there is meticulous protection even through death. Even death won't mean that he's not protecting you just like Jesus. So as Drew referred to earlier, Romans 8 is so helpful here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Psalm 121 means at its fullness. The Lord will keep you. He'll keep you from all evil. He'll keep your whole life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And yet sometimes his keeping is not as dramatic as Romans 8 and Luke 21 says that it might be. What I mean is is that probably tomorrow no one in this room will be martyred. That might be in your pilgrimage eventually, 
but probably not tomorrow. And yet whatever does happen tomorrow, and whatever hills are before you right now, he'll keep you if you're his. Tomorrow might be a mundane trek, but it may be severe, and regardless, he's with you. We're going to God, and he'll give us what we need to get there. I quoted last week from Eugene Peterson's book on the Psalms of Ascents. The book is often quote-worthy. And here's what he says on our psalm for this week. The Christian life is not a quiet escape to a garden where we can walk and talk uninterruptedly with our Lord. Not a fantasy trip to a heavenly city where we can compare our blue ribbons and gold medals with those of others who have made it to the winner's circle. The Christian life is going to God. In going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on. Breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same newspapers, are citizens under the same governments, pay the same prices for groceries and gasoline, fear the same dangers, are subject to the same pressures, and get the same distresses, are buried in the same ground. The difference is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know we are accompanied by God. We know we are ruled by God. And therefore, no matter what doubts we endure or what accidents we experience, the Lord will guard us from every evil. He guards our very life. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't yet come to walk with Jesus along this path, to go to God for all eternity, would you today give up on yourself, turn from your sin, cling to him, ask him to give you what he says he does give, grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, promises that are eternal, eternal life, everlasting life and joy. This is why he laid down his life, to, to bring the sheep in and to bring us to God. He's leading us on the way. Would you join with us in that? If not, why? Why? Why delay? If you're not a Christian, I want you to know that the Christian life is not easy. In some ways, it makes life harder. You have to do things you don't otherwise have to do. You have to deal with feelings you don't otherwise have to deal with. But it's true, it's right, it's real. And there is great comfort. God is near, even to the brokenhearted. God comforts, he gives grace, he gives help. He won't let us be hurt eternally. And that changes everything. Christian, you can't see his guarding, can you? You can't see him on the watch, can you? Neither could these Israelites of Psalm 121. They couldn't see him protecting. They couldn't see what was being held back. They couldn't see 
what God was up to, but they knew that it was so. They believed it to be true. They encouraged each other with it. They kept singing about it. They kept meditating upon it. And they kept encouraging each other with this song. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the faith and example of many of these psalms. Lord, lead us, protect us, keep us, guard us. What we simply pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Help us to forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we thank you for the inheritance that you've given us, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. Thank you that we are being guarded by your power through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last day. And in this we rejoice, even though now we go through various trials. It's to you that we lift up our eyes. You who are enthroned in the heavens. And as servants look to the hand of their masters, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. We look to you, thanking you that your eyes are ever on us because of Jesus. Help us now as we sing a version of our psalm for today, Psalm 121. Help us to sing it to you, to ourselves, and to each other to encourage our faith in the pilgrimage that is before us. Amen.